0: This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Post Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs, listen live, or support by visiting WCWP.org. This is Anand Venigala and I will be your host for the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, news, politics, and potentially all that is under the sun. Our guest for today is Professor Gary Saul Morson. He is the Lawrence B. Dumas Professor of the Arts and Humanities. He is also the Professor of Slavic Languages and Literatures at the Northwestern University. He has written such books as Narrative and Freedom, The Shadows of Time, Hidden in Plain View, Narrative and Creative Potentials in War and Peace, the long and short of it, from aphorism to novel, and Anna Karenina and Our Time, Seeing More Wisely. He's a widely respected scholar in his field. He's won Best Book of the Year awards from the American Comparative Literature Association and the American Association of Teachers and Slavic and Eastern European Languages. I want to thank him for joining us today to discuss the preeminent of Russian writers, Leo Tolstoy, but also for his passion, Russian literature in general. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: So when did you first discover that you loved Russian literature so much?
1: Oh, what a question. Um, I guess uh, probably when I was um, in college and just beginning to love literature generally. And uh, the Russians, with their moral urgency and their consideration of really the deep ultimate questions of life, just... um, impressed me enormously. And so I I gradually shifted from field to field. I was once going to study physics and then philosophy and eventually settled on Russian literature. It has fascinated me ever since.
0: Excellent. So before we segue into Tolstoy, I want to know what you think 19th century Russian literature has that distinguishes it from, say, 19th century British literature or 19th century American literature even, or 19th century French literature.
1: Uh, well, several things. I mean, for one thing, it is if what you're interested in is the the novel. Clearly, the great novelists of the world um, were the 19th century Russians Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Turgenev, Chekhov for the short story. Uh, England, of course, also has some great realists, uh, and I suppose you know you could put George Eliot into their category of great writers. American literature actually is very different. It's not only um, doesn't uh, measure up in quality to Russian or even English uh, of the period, it's not concerned with realism. American literature is uh, more about symbolism than anything else. So oh, it's I a agree. a different sort of animal. You know, um, oh, I'm glad you do. So. I it's, mean,
0: it's I really noticed different. that the Scarlet Letter and the Moby Dick, those are very symbolistic mm-hmm. works. They're beautiful works, yes. I agree.
1: They are. They are. They're great works. Um, uh, But if you want to think of who are the great American realists, well, you eventually get to Henry James, um, and he's one of the greatest, but that's sort of later. Um, Certainly you have Henry James. But James is sort of not really typical of American literature. Um, And, and, you know, the French also have their great realists. Where The Russians differ from the French is sort of an ethos. That is, the French too often have this notion that um, to really take moral questions seriously is somehow vulgar. Uh, certainly you get that all over Flaubert and stendhal Not Balzac, but those two. And uh, the Russia... Just think, for example, contrast the way uh, Flaubert depicts Madame Bovary and Tolstoy depicts Anna Karenina. One is deeply ironic about her and the other is, you know, getting inside her head and you, even when she's rolling, you just feel
0: deeply um, for her. Yeah, I haven't read Anna Karenina yet, but I've been reading War and Peace, and I still notice this intimacy that Tolstoy has, even if he has this omniscient narrative perspective. And he can still go into the people's feelings and consciousness a lot, even in his later fiction, where he's, like, moving away from the novel. He can do this so well, especially in the Kreutzer Sonata and even in parts of Haji Murad, his last novella.
1: Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's... That's probably what he is, uh, you know, the best at. Why he's so many people regard him as the great greatest novelist who ever lived. He can get inside people's heads in the way really nobody else ever could. It just amazed other writers, like you know. Not just Dostoevsky, people like Virginia Woolf thought there was just no comparison, you know,
0: there. Yeah, Yeah, she called War and Peace the greatest of the novels, and I'm sort of inclined to agree for the most part if there weren't also Don Quixote or Rabelais or whatever other authors there were.
1: Yes, right. Exactly. Sorry about that. It's okay.
0: So what do you think are some of Tolstoy's salient features besides, for example, his grasp of consciousness in terms of his writing and his themes and his concerns?
1: Well... Uh, in addition to you know the, the psychology, there's uh, he, he's good at psychology because he's he understands what people are like, you know, and he's he's able to express that in terms of ideas too. You know the way he raises philosophical and moral questions. He's an incredibly subtle moral thinker. Um, the characters wrestle with these moral problems, and they're never simplified. You always see how they're more complex than. Um, than we would think. He has a strong sense of the way in which um, we deceive ourselves. He, you could call him the greatest artist of self deception. Uh, the way people arrange not to see what would contradict uh, what they believe, the way they arrange to see what they need to see in order to do mm. what they want to do, the, the many tricks that the mind plays on one, wittingly or unwittingly, that this is what he's really, you know, spectacular about and no one has come close.
0: And I think some of Tolstoy's themes like are about family, religion, and I think he's one of the best religious writers. Father Sergius his late fiction and even in War and Peace there's this brilliant depiction of the religious milieu of where he is at, which is 19th century Russia. And even in things like The Kreutzer Sonata, which at times feels more Dostoevskian, you can definitely see he's entering the complex relations between sex and your morals and your psyche. And there's a Message into the Quartet Sonata that I strongly disagree with, but I still love the book even so much. Uh,
1: yes, yeah, so, Tolstoy so liked to, um, particularly in his late years. You know, he he went through a moral crisis in about 1880, and it was after War and Peace and Anna Karenina. Uh, and after that point, he became you know much more uh, inclined to uh, formulations simply to be shocking. He had always had a bit of that in him, but. Um, he particularly liked to take things to their extreme in order to, to shock people. Uh, his contemporaries referred to him as the um, the of that is, the one who says nyet or no to everything anybody else believes. And so it's kind of hard to know if in some words, does he actually believe what he's saying or is he just trying out the idea to see where it will lead?
0: And at least, how do you think he differs from Dostoevsky? Because I've heard people call Dostoevsky a psychological writer, and Tolstoy is sometimes described as more of a sociologist for some reason.
1: No, I don't think that's right. I think they're both psychological writers. Um, and they're interested in many of the same themes, but they are interested in different aspects of the psyche. Dostoevsky is more interested in, uh, well, what we would call the un. Uh, this is to simplify, but he, what we think of as the unconscious and Tolstoy, the complexities of consciousness, that would be one um, key difference between the two of them. And, uh, you know, Dostoevsky very, always wants to bring things into the religious or spiritual, and Tolstoy,
0: he's,
1: he'll take things wherever they go.
0: I and mean, even if it does lead to religion, he'll take it there, but if it's not religious, sure. he'll be fine with that.
1: Yes, right. I mean, you know, it's. I mean, he's extraordinarily successful at, at certain um, religious moods. For example, he's probably, as far as I know, the only writer who has ever made uh, Christian love, that is love for your enemies, psychologically plausible. Dostoevsky would have killed to be able to do it. He couldn't. He kept trying. He couldn't. You know, he could just assert he loved his enemies, but he couldn't make it believable psychologically. Tolstoy does twice, once in War and Peace, once in Anna Karenina. Uh, and you know, it's it's like he could do anything, and others, oh, well, in a day's work, we'll do Christian love, we can do anything. That's the feeling he is. And then it turns out that, you know, Christian love, though possible, is not necessarily desirable. You know, everyone else would probably say, well, you know, the ironic comment, the problem is Christianity has never been tried, no one has achieved it, but Tolstoy is saying, well, no, it could be achieved, but then, even then, its results are ambiguous.
0: Interesting. I mean, um, so Tolstoy is willing to be critical of Christianity, even though he himself was a Christian, and that's kind of a brave thing, in my humble opinion. What do you think?
1: Uh, yeah. Well, yes, definitely. He, you know, his loyalty was always to um, the truth, wherever it might lead, and you don't pull your punches when that's the case.
0: And Dostoevsky, I've heard George Steiner, the critic, said that he would rather renounce truth than renounce Christ, which is telling, I think.
1: Uh, well, Dostoevsky himself says that in one of his letters, that if it, you know, um, came to the choice, he would rather stay with Christ than with the truth, which I- indeed is a, um, uh, an interesting statement. Uh, you know, yeah, he, Dostoevsky is desperately trying to find faith, and he kept asserting it. And Tolstoy was not. I mean, you know, it was... It was a possibility. It was always there. He had a very peculiar sort of faith, which changed over the years. But, you know, the whole universe was fascinating to him. It's like he he could see anything he was interested in everything
0: and I can oh, tell I that especially that. in War and Peace I mean there are a lot of these details there's Prince Andrei looking at that infinite sky and he's amazed by it and then there's Pierre and all his interests and then Tolstoy could just give a perfect picture of so much in War and Peace and like a portrait of like the Napoleon then of even the Tsar And he hates Napoleon, but I think he does really well in showing how Napoleon is a complex figure in his own right, despite the fact that Tolstoy himself hates Napoleon.
1: Yeah, well, Napoleon comes off as a bit of a buffoon in War and Peace. Um, Someone too impressed with his own genius, which from Tolstoy's perspective didn't really exist, um, which is almost certainly not true, but it's a delightful picture of a person too impressed with himself.
0: It's interesting. So when did Tolstoy get interested in writing? Was he ever interested in it as a child or did he discover this much later on throughout his life?
1: Well, no, even when he was in, uh, when he entered, you know, university, uh, he started keeping a diary and um, the diaries eventually became some of his stories. And he kept the diary most of his life. He, in fact, in terms of number of pages, he's probably the, the best documented person who ever lived and because of these diaries that go on for, you know, volume after volume after volume. Um, and he used it as a form of introspection to understand himself, to understand the people around him. And again, some of his early stories are simply diary entries, you know, rephrased as if they were from a fictional character.
0: Yeah, and Diary of the Madman, which is one of his later, shorter works, feels like that. It's like, it's first first person, it's like the ramblings of a madman who's discovered faith. And I Mm -hmm. wonder at times if Tolstoy describing that as a good thing, but then you brought up the point that he's describing Christian faith as, if we get up to this point, it might not be so great or accessible or appealing. And maybe that's what The Diary of a Man-Man, which is one of Tolstoy's later works, is trying Mm -hmm. to get at. And the reason I refer to Tolstoy's later works is because I've read a lot of those things. I haven't yet read Anna Karenina, but I've read War and Peace, and I've read some of Tolstoy's Mm -hmm. late fiction, so that's why I'm referring to it a lot in this episode.
1: Well, if you haven't read Anna Karenina, you have a wonderful experience
0: ahead of you. I will get to it as soon as possible, maybe after I finish War and Peace, but I will get to it in my lifetime. Oh, uh,
1: I, I hope so. I hope you have a time to read it several times. I
0: have. Okay, and I would like to talk a little bit about that, even if I haven't read it, at least I want to see what you have to say about it, because I think it will be very relevant to Tolstoy.
1: About what, sorry.
0: Uh, It would be very relevant to Tolstoy to discuss Anna Karenina, and I think you'll have a lot of things to say about it, which I would be very interested in hearing.
1: Uh, Well, you know, I wrote a whole book about it, so I hardly know uh, where to begin. Uh, What is behind both War and Peace and and, uh, Anna Karenina is the idea that We deceive ourselves by thinking that the most important things in life are the grand, heroic, the noticeable events, um, the dramatic moments of life, the most intense moments of life, whereas what really makes life good or bad is the ordinary, everyday moments, the things we barely notice, that we don't pay attention to, the people we take for granted. And both of these novels are about discrediting heroic or romantic views of life. In Anna Karenina, it's romantic views of love. Um, and getting us to see what we usually overlook, redirecting our attention to ordinary people, ordinary situations, and the everyday process of life. That's really his key theme in both books.
0: I can definitely you know, notice what I you're talking about. This. and. One critic I heard described that Tolstoy isn't exactly condoning Anna's adultery, but he thinks that Tolstoy is depicting Anna as a person who's going in the wrong two steps, but she has her heart in the right place for the most part, and so she's almost like Levin, who mm. does have a much more successful journey in his life. That's what I heard. Yeah,
1: I don't agree with that interpretation because you know um, it, it depends on the notion that one is supposed to be. Sympathetic with Anna as the grand romantic heroine who, you know, pursues her love. This is the sort of romantic cliche that Tolstoy hated and devoted his life and this particular book to undermining. If you read this book as sympathetic to Anna um, and what and the way she thinks and acts, you've completely misread the book. You you do get inside her head and you have compassion for her, but you have compassion for all the suffering she goes through because she has all these wrong ideas and behaves badly. Mm. Um, you know, we don't normally see that. I talk about this in, in my book because the, the myth of grand romance is so central to our culture, even more now than in Tolstoy's time, that we don't, even, we don't even entertain the possibility that a great writer could be opposed to it. But he was opposed to it. For the same reason he was opposed to, you know, Napoleon romantic views of heroism and war, he was also opposed to, you know, the idea of the grand adultery, the grand affair of love as this intense, not-everyday thing. He really hated that notion, and he wanted to discredit it. And so he created a a heroine who believed in it. And, of course, his readers, who also believed in it, wound up misreading the book, essentially, you know, Believing it endorsed exactly what it was trying not to endorse. So interpretations of that book have divided between those who are sympathetic with Anna and those who are not. And I think it's absolutely clear, if you read the book carefully, that although you have compassion for Anna, you recognize that what she is doing is immoral, not just because it's adultery, but because it's cruel and self-deceiving um, uh, and wrong.
0: And then I think of the Kreutzer Sonata where Tolstoy is almost taking this condemnation of love and sensuality to an extreme level where it should disappear even if it costs the existence of the human race. And that was one of the things I noticed and one of the things I so disagree with, but I can appreciate it because of the imagination he puts into it.
1: Well, Kreutzer Sonata is about sexuality. That's not what Anna Karenina is about. Anna Karenina is about the ideology of love meaning romantic love, the love of Romeo and Juliet, that's the most intense moments of life. Anna is not, does not commit adultery because she's interested in sex. She's interested in grand affairs and passion. Her brother, you know, Siva, is a sensualist, but she is not. She's an, a belie- believer in the ideology of romantic love. It's not, The book is not about sex so much. It's about that idea of the grand passion, the true love, the the love that you'd sacrifice your life for and, your ch- and neglect your children for, and so on. That's the, the topic. Right? But the is not about, se- about sex. This is rather different.
0: And then I'm thinking of War and Peace, which I've read more of for sure, and then I see Tolstoy That's critiquing that. romantic love even in a Natasha Rostov, where after Andre is away for a long time, Natasha gets involved for a while with Anatoly Kurrigan, who is depicted as a really bad right. guy, and then that doesn't really end up well as far as we know
1: well right, and when you see when you get to the end of the book you'll see another little polemic against the romantic idea of love with, related to natasha hmm.
0: i've about so, yeah, like 300 yeah. pages or so before i completed i've read about 900 pages of it since last year i mean it's really amazing yeah, what well, it is
1: yeah, um now you have left the length of a normal novel
0: nice so what are some of Tolstoy's literary influences like? What are some of the authors he liked to read, and how did they impact his work?
1: You know, that, that's an interesting question. Um, I think he got most of his you know, ideas for his work by observation, and self-observation. But among the writers he really liked were um, uh, some of the great skeptics, like Montaigne, he was a You know, Tolstoy was a great skeptic of all abstract philosophy. Montaigne, uh, Lawrence Stern, and Tristan Shandy, the various French aphorists uh, like um, La Roche-Foucault with their sardonic view of human nature. Um, Then he was interested in in some great philosophers who had the sense of the futility of our ambitions in life, the book of Ecclesiastes and the Bible, and, you know, the great Modern um, proponent of a similar philosophy. That in the 19th century, that was Schopenhauer, um, and he even became interested, part of his life, in Buddhism with its sense of the futility of earthly life. Um, so that was a big strain in his thought. And Buddhism, Schopenhauer, that aspect of the Bible, that that was also very important to him. And of course, the great realist novelist. You know, he um, he knew George Eliot. Of um, he knew Dickens, uh, Balzac, and, you know, he was incredibly well-read, knew many languages. Um, and I think and, much later
0: in life, he took up Greek and was influenced by Homer, especially when it comes to war and peace.
1: Well, he, I mean, war and peace reflects the influence of Homer even before he knew Greek. He didn't, he learned Greek much later, um, but he didn't need Greek, just like we don't need Greek to appreciate the essence of, of Homer. Um, he actually learned Greek later in life in order to read the New Testament in the original, mm. um, because, you know, he thought that um, established church interpretations were, were wrong, and he wanted to actually read the text in the original to see. Uh, and since he had a facility for languages, he was able to do that.
0: So regarding War and Peace, what were some of the features of it that distinguished it from other 19th century novels of the time? You remem- I remember you wrote a book, and I checked it out a while ago, and you were pointing out some of the features that Tolstoy had in the novel that a lot of other people in the time didn't like at first, but which were later appreciated or, at, sadly enough, were not always noticed. Yeah,
1: well, it's very, if you pick this book up, Expecting a conventional novel, you'll find uh, it will disappoint you a lot, as it did the original people. For example, in, in a conventional novel, if an event occurs early on that looks like a dramatic, important event, it, you'll come back to it at a later point. You know, if, let's say, in Dickens, if the first chapter of *Great Expectations* the hero uh, meets a convict you know that that's going to mean something later on, or the author wouldn't have put it there. But in War and Peace, it doesn't mean anything later on. It may or may not. The other shoe continually fails to drop. You have characters introduced who look like they're going to be very important. Maybe they stay around for 50 pages and they disappear. It doesn't look like your normal, well-structured novel. And that, that was deliberate, because Tolstoy was the ultimate realist, and he was looking for a way to make the experience of time the way it is in life, not in literature. In life, for example, events don't always mean something, right? If you don't believe me, go out, find a convict, and, you know, do what Pip does in red Great Give him a pie and see if it matters someday. It won't. Um,
0: I do think that's...
1: I, be the ultimate realist here, you
0: know? I completely agree. I definitely noticed that at times, like, Pierre and Dolokhov, I mean, that seems a little important, but that doesn't really gain as much prominence even later on in the novel, though I think Pierre and Dolokhov, I think they meet at one point, but that doesn't really mean anything compared to all the other stuff.
1: That's right. It looks like if you read the first, I don't know, three or four hundred pages, you would think that, um, Dolokhov was, some of the original critics of the book, you know, was serialized, it came out in pieces thought that the main character of the book was to be Dolokhov, certainly equal to Pierre and André. And if you put yourself in their position, reading it in installments as it came out, you might think that too, because in the early sections he is that important. certainly more important than Nikolai Rostov at the beginning, and it's Nikolai Rostov who turns out to be, you know, a much more major character than Dolokhov. And the fact is, Tolstoy didn't know that, because as he says in an essay he was writing at the time, He wrote each section not knowing what was going to be in the next section, what was going to happen to his characters, how long the book was going to be, when he would stop, because that's what life is like. It's lived forward, not backward. You're not living life towards a predetermined end the way a novelist might have an ending in mind. So he tried to avoid that entirely.
0: And then that relates, I think, to his theory of history where it's basically there's an event here and an event there and then an event in the third place and an event in the fourth place and they all at some time come together in a swarm and then things happen rather than like some predetermined course of history. Yeah. Or, and I wonder what that means.
1: Well, it means in any attempt to try to find laws of history, anything that we call a social science in the hard sense of science is doomed to failure. Uh, there cannot be a social science If by science you mean you know, something modeled as, on uh, physics, the way the great 19th century thinkers thought there were in a way many social scientists today still think they were. It's a story regarded we that as complete nonsense. Uh, there can't be laws of history, there can't be you know, uh, simple formulas for sociology it, it, or psychology. If you think that, it's because you aren't seeing the complexity of the world. Um, and that, that's one of the themes of war. in War and Peace the, the symbol of people who think that way are the German generals who think they have a science of warfare and, uh, they,
0: and they don't so succeed really it seems in the book
1: no they don't succeed and, and as Tolstoy you know, described their thought, it's immune to disconfirmation um, because if you know, remember one of the German generals who thinks he has a hard science, if He wins the battle. He claims it vindicates his science. But if he loses, he claims it's because his instructions were not properly carried out. And since you can't possibly carry out all instructions to the letter, he always has an excuse. And so he never learns from actual experience. And Tolstoy thought that was rather typical of people with grand systems and how they impose them on the world. Um, And he thought that that that's what would happen if you tried to formulate a social science, as people were trying then and as they're trying now. Um, The generals are his sort of general symbol for um, that kind of thinking.
0: But then one of the generals that Tolstoy sort of likes or at least depicts admirably is General Kutuzov and who sort of admires and who sort of embodies the Tolstoyan ideal of waiting for the right time and trusting history to work out in a nonlinear way even as long as Mm -hmm. he is patient and waiting and attentive and almost humble
1: And you remember that as commander-in-chief, before the Battle of Austerlitz, when all the other generals are talking about how to deploy the divisions and and the regiments according to the science of warfare, he goes to sleep.
0: Yeah, and then... Because
1: it's all all nonsense, right? (laughs)
0: And then there's, like, some controversy about what he does, does when he abandons Moscow to Napoleon, and then he says that the burning of Moscow is not the fault of either the Russians or the French, whereas the historical account, it seems to confirm, as far as I know, that Rastopchin, the ma- the governor of Moscow at the time, was behind the burnings. Am I right?
1: I, I doubt. No, I don't really think so. I, mean, I, I I think the story's point there is pretty obvious that when you reflect upon it, you have a city built of wood that's where there are fires all the time, and the inhabitants leave it, and soldiers who make campfires come in. You don't need arsonists to have that city uh, burned down. It's almost certain to happen in, in situations like that, considering if there are fires all the time anyway in a city made of wood. But now there's no fire department and no people living in their houses to put the fires out. It's just random soldiers with campfires. I think that's a pretty good uh, uh, argument right there. Even if there were arsonists, that wasn't what caused uh, Moscow to burn down.
0: I wonder how historians agree with Tolstoy's points if they do at all. Do you think they're sort of close to what Tolstoy has said in War and Peace regarding his analyses, or is Tolstoy way ahead of them?
1: Well, you know, Russian historians will always agree with Tolstoy because, you know, Tolstoy is a god for them. And so... They're bound to agree with him, and they always do. Um, so that doesn't say a whole lot. Um, um, but uh, what are non-Russianists? I'm not sure what, what they say. Um, are you still there? Sorry.
0: Yeah, I think like Tolstoy's depiction of Napoleon, while it does have its virtues, I think, as you noted before, it's like a little one-sided and it doesn't appreciate Mm -hmm. Napoleon's genius. But then again, Tolstoy, I think, was going for a different point that genius isn't everything. And then he critiques Prince Andre, a man who does seek for the genius for the epical, but then who dies pretty horribly as far as I know.
1: Uh, Well, he dies at some
0: resolve. Real, He loses his will to live. I'm not
1: going to give... You'll see, Prince Andrei's death is, you know, absolutely one of the most amazing scenes in world literature, so I don't want to give it away to you, but um, it's certainly the greatest death ever depicted in world literature. It takes a long time, like 100 pages. So.
0: Even better than, say, for example, The Death of Ivan Ilyich, where Tolstoy actually focuses almost 100% on a death?
1: Yeah, those would be the two places, I would think, um, that you'd go. You know, in his time, Tolstoy was thought of as the poet of death, because no one had ever described it, or then or since, as he has. Um, that seems that's one of his absolute specialties. Um, he seems to convince you of things about death, like what someone would experience after he can no longer communicate with anybody. What would be going through his mind? And as one of the critics of the time said, "How does Tolstoy know this? He didn't rise from the dead and." tell us what it was like having died already how does he know what people would experience but
0: afterwards? it's the power of imagination and he had a really good imagination at that
1: and it's a part of really understanding how the human mind works so you can project you see what you don't actually see and make it convincing because you know how the mind works at least better than any of your critics might and, uh, but you'll see you'll, you know, I'm sure you'll get a lot out of those death scenes they're really quite amazing
0: yeah, and, one and of the, the older fe- you get the more
1: you'll get out of them, too.
0: Yeah, and the feature in War and Peace that I noticed is that Tolstoy sometimes has dialogue, but you know who's speaking to them? The gestures or the facial expressions, they're the ones that are speaking. Like, I remember Prince Andre's wife, when she's dying, I think Tolstoy dedicates some time to have her facial expression, like, speak. Yeah. I wonder what that does for yeah. the novel.
1: Uh how you look at others, what you see in others by their gestures, the way their body speaks, is part of your experience of them. The thing is, we usually um, misunderstand the way the body and the mind interact. And in most writers, if they describe the body, it is because the body reflects what you're thinking. But that's true a lot in Tolstoy, but the reverse is also the case. That is, Sometimes what your body is doing, simply because of habit, may lead you to different thoughts. It works both ways in Tolstoy. And as one of the critics said, everybody knows that if you wish to pray, you'll assume a kneeling position. But Count Tolstoy knows that if by chance you assume a kneeling position, you may very well feel like praying. And so those interactions—that what gets Tolstoy to that extreme realism that nobody has has matched. That is one of the insights that does it, and how he describes the body. His appreciation of the body is—I mean, there's nothing like that in Dostoevsky, for example. Um,
0: yeah, or and, anyone else. yeah and a lot of his writing has a physical presence. Even in his later fiction, when he's trying to simplify things, there is still that physical presence, and that's really salient in Tolstoy. And especially in Haji mm-hmm. Murad, one of his last mm-hmm. works and one of his greatest, that kind of is like a return for old Tolstoy after we had a lot of new Tolstoy, so to speak. I even wrote an mm-hmm. article for it on the student newspaper or a student magazine, mm-hmm. and here's what I had to that's write right. about it. Haji Murad's appeal centers around its main character, Haji Murad, a warrior who is immediately recognizable as fierce and heroic. It was refreshing to have a Christian author depict someone of Muslim faith as the hero of the story, in contrast to his counterpart, the Tsar Nicholas I, who was perceived as Christian in addition to being very lifeless. This small detail carries immense weight as it shows that there is no bias or condemnation of people of a different faith on Tolstoy's part. And the main conflict in the story doesn't lie in the fact that these two people are different, but that, that Haji Murat must remain completely fearless in the face of death. And I want to talk a bit about that because in many ways, Haji Murat is completely different from what of Tolstoy's other characters are because in Tolstoy, you have people like Pierre or Levin or Andre, who are often self-questioning, who are members of the landed aristocracy. But in Haji Murat, you have a very different character, almost something like out of Homer but put to mm-hmm. Tolstoy's uses, he's like a hero out of Walter Scott, but with much more sophistication. He can kill without remorse, but at the same time, he has moral code, and he's depicted in this, like, peep show way, almost from afar, but you still have access to him.
1: Yes, out of Homer is a good description. He's, you know, an epic... He has the epic hero about him. Um, the larger-than-life epic hero. Um, done unironically. Whereas... When Prince André tries to
0: become an epic hero, um, he always encounters a reality that doesn't fit. Yeah, and, it, and he ends up like being enamored by common things like a sky, and that's fascinating and very telling, and that's one of the key features, like André and the sky. It's one of the most elemental connections, I think, with, in the whole novel. And at one point when André is hurting, Pierre basically brings back André's attention to the sky. This is after André's wife had died in childbirth. Mm-hmm. Or died giving yes, birth to exactly. a child.
1: Yes. Um, well, the sky reappears a few times for Prince Andre.
0: Yeah.
1: Tolstoy comments on he he never saw that sky at this point in his life. Um, so and that becomes telling too. The sense of how does my how do my everyday concerns, all the things I am so passionate about, how do they relate to the ultimate, to my view of a life as a whole, that's what you know the sky tends to represent.
0: And I want to talk about Pierre Bezukhov, the main character of War and Peace. I mean, he ends up becoming the main character for the most part. I mean, it's fascinating how Tolstoy depicts him changing subtly through time and history. At at the first mm-hmm. point, you see Pierre becoming a sort of liberal, and then he's very jealous of his wife. At times, he's almost like Pozneshev, I think, Pozneshev being the jealous husband, but then later he changes over time. He becomes more, acep- more receptive, more aware, and more moral, and more redeemed, mm-hmm. and he becomes a much better character over time, even as he has his own flaws and failings. But the Pierre of, like, page 900 or page 800 is far different from, like, the Pierre of page 1.
1: Well, that's true in pretty much all great real novels. Characters grow. That's what makes real-life novels different as a genre, let's say, from uh, romances or adventure stories. You know, adventure stories, think of James Bond. The hero is always the same.
0: What about epic poetry? I mean, how does it relate to the realist novel? Because epic poetry depicts characters who seem to be relatively unchanging, but there are still some changes within it, especially with Achilles and Odysseus within the Odyssey. That's as far as I can see.
1: The Odyssey, I think, is Odysseus is pretty much, you know, always what he was. The man who, as it says in the first line, is never at a loss. Always clever, always able to, you know, think his way out of situations. Achilles does have a moment of crisis, but thats it's not a process of gradual change. It's one moment of crisis. Um, but, it, you know, you could say he had one character change, but basically he remains the same. Um, and that, that character, epic poets are trying to see how a particular kind of heroism works its way out in the world when it meets obstacles. It's not about character change. It's about heroism and reality. It's a different set of questions. So character change would not be important
0: there. And before, I want to mention something about Nikolai and Natasha Rostov. What significance do they have in Tolstoy's universe morally and literarily?
1: Well, they're different characters. They have a different significance. Um, Nikolai is... A very unusual character in world literature because there's nothing special about him. Tolstoy describes him as thoroughly mediocre. How do you make one of your great heroes thoroughly mediocre? But Tolstoy makes that character interesting. And what's more, it turns out that it's not the heroic, brave Prince Andre who's an effective soldier, it's Nikolai Rostov. Why would that be the case? It's really quite fascinating what he does um, with Nikolai, who becomes one of the great heroes in spite of the fact, or because of the
0: fact, that he's not a hero. Yeah, I noticed that Tolstoy depicts Rostov as uniquely at home in the military experiments and military environment, and maybe that is due to his, like, quote-unquote mediocrity that he's almost able to function in that environment with all its orders and rules and, like, uniformity. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm Mm-hmm
0: and then natasha it's like a very appealing female characterization in tolstoy that shows that tolstoy could write women so well even though he was a male author and then you see her like trans transitioning from like a young girl with who's a bit vain, but who generally means well to someone who gets more reflective over time and then mm-hmm. gets changed by yeah. love and sorrow and more. And then in many ways, she's depicted as the person who is able to pull the Rostov family together when they all have to get out of Moscow for various reasons.
1: Quite right, yes. Um, uh, the Rostov family is interesting. Uh, Rostov, unlike many authors, when he creates a family. He doesn't just create a set a set of individuals who are related. He creates a specific family culture. And so the Rostovs are a culture of their own, very different from the Volkhonskys or the Kuragins. And he does that in all his books when he has you know Um, families. The Rostovs are you know spontaneous. Um, They appreciate the moment of life. They're on the other hand they're completely irresponsible. They can't make decisions, Um, you know, they won't face reality, which is why, you know, the family is going to lose all its wealth and go bankrupt. Um, uh, So they're 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 not prudent. In that sense, they're the opposite of, you know, the Balkonskis, who are prudent and rational uh, and know that there's more beyond the present moment, but on the other hand, therefore find it difficult to appreciate life because they're all they're not in it any particular moment that's i think one what prince andre sees in natasha when he falls in love with her, just because she has what has.
0: but they can't be together in some sense for that very reason because they're very different people and very different expectations
1: quite quite that's right and then I think
0: Tolstoy depicts this element of thwarted expectations in his characters like Pierre and Helen. I mean, we do expect that they're going to have a bad marriage and they do have a bad marriage. I Helen Kurgan yeah. dies on some experiment for some reasons. And then you have mm-hmm. Natasha and Andre. You think they're going to be pretty good, but at the same time, you know that they aren't going to fit each other because the family sort of hate each other in some ways, unreasonably hate each other. And then you have Nikolai and Sonia. You know, that's somehow not going to happen but you really do hope it's going to happen and then princess right. maria her expectations are in some sense constantly thwarted yet tolstoy depicts her as enduring and in some ways the ideal character
1: yeah i think she actually is you know the real heroine of the book this princess maria the one the author loves the most really, of all the characters
0: yeah, but I personally think she was a bit too harsh to Natasha. Not that Natasha made good decisions when she was trying to run off with Anatoly Natalie Kurigan, but I just think that some of it was not just rationally critiquing her, but out of, like, an irrational oh, yeah. hate. That's what I think. And it's it not really an
1: irrational hate. It's, it's, the, it's the contrast of the family culture, you see. Um, if you imagine a culture of people who spend their whole life... Um, being prudent, uh, not being carried away, never being self destructive, um, husbanding resources that can take care of other people, and then you meet a spendthrift and a wasteful person, you're going to find it difficult to take that person. That's how the Balkans can see the Rust Dogs, you see.
0: Yeah. And I, I want not,
1: to, it's not, a, it's not an irrational hatred, it's a cultural difference.
0: But I say irrational hatred because, I mean, the anger with which Maria addresses Natasha, it's like, like it's all pent-up anger, and then she's like kind of letting it out. And I don't think Maria, from my perspective, I could be wrong, but I don't think Maria is very considerate of what Natasha was going through. And that, but then again, this could be due to different vantage points, in my humble opinion. Well, she cares
1: about her brother. How dare that person, you know, um, cause such pain to her brother that you know, her, her family... Boy,
0: speaking here. Yet on one level, it seems that Maria did not want the marriage to happen because she had her own misgivings about Natasha before. Not entirely unreasonable, but... That also factors, in my opinion, into what Maria's yeah. reacting into, basically, when she, like, outright slut-shames Natasha. You mean shameless, hussy. That's, I'm just quoting from the novel. And that sounded to me very harsh. It's coming from an understandable place, but at least when I first read it, it just sounded so harsh and so almost mm-hmm. un-Christian of Maria, who's depicted as the Christian ideal in many ways.
1: She doesn't call her back to her face. You're, you're describing that... And I don't
0: recall. Okay, maybe. I mean, right at the moment when Maria is, like, blocking the Anatoly Kurgan and his gang, maybe I read it wrong. I have to check again. Well,
1: Prince Mario's talking to Prince Andre at that point, not
0: to Natasha. Okay, but then even Prince Andre was, like, away at the time that Natasha was about to abandon him for Anatoly. Uh. Well, he, he's not
1: immediately present on the scene because. Remember, his father has set a condition that he can marry her if they wait a year. And the father is very clever about this because he knows that Rostov, Rostovs are impulsive. They can't wait a year. Something is mm-hmm. going to happen. But that's the whole point. They're impulsive, irresponsible people. And I'm going to prove it to you, in effect, he's saying, because you can marry if it takes a year. But I know in advance she can't wait a year because she can't wait for anything. And it turns out to be correct.
0: Yeah, but then again, old Bolkonski is depicted somewhat unsympathetically, at least in the opening cha- chapters. He's not exactly a bad guy, but he can be a very cruel guy, especially to his own family, I think.
1: Yes, he's domineering, but that doesn't make him wrong in, in, about Natasha. I agree. He sees, he's, you know, he sees the problem. Now, of course, you can see all this from the other point of view, too, right? How did Rostov view the Bolkonskis, and it's Tolstoy's genius that he lets. You see how each side sees the other, and you enter into both of them. That's what a great novelist will do. What does it seem like from that perspective to be the other person? How do they each view each other? That's what a great novelist will do. And that will help you understand how people misunderstand each other or don't like each other for one reason or another.
0: Yeah. So from what I know, is Tolstoy going to advocate a kind of moderate perspective between the Bolkonsky extremism and the Rostov extremism or is he going to advocate something entirely different? What do you think? I'm not asking for too many details because I have to read the rest of the 300 pages. Uh,
1: well, he's not, I mean, see, he's not exactly advocating, he's just noticing from above. This is, these are the human possibilities. Wisdom consists in grasping, And being able to empathize with the different kinds of human possibilities. That's a a technique that Pierre will learn by the end of the book. Seeing into different perspectives and not suspending judgment while you do.
0: And then I noticed the conversation between Pierre and Rambel basically it's a very fascinating conversation between the two. Pierre saves his French enemy and then they both sit down and they have this like shared experience in some way or another. Even if they have very, very differing perspectives on life and nationality, there's a real shared knowledge and understanding between the two that I really appreciate. And it's one of the best moments in the whole book, in my humble opinion. It's so great. It's just, I like the dialogue. I like everything about it.
1: Yes, Rambal is sort of, although of course, is a, a somewhat of a parody of a Frenchman, right? You know, sort of Tolstoy. You know, his attitude towards love, which Tolstoy describes as, you know, ironically and is typically French, you know, which which you laugh at. Um, but uh, yeah, he becomes a sympathetic character, nevertheless.
0: And then Pierre is later depicted as doing his own elements of heroism. They're small, but they're genuinely heroic. He rescues a kid and reunites it with the family. And then he rescues a woman from being beaten by a French soldier and gets punished for that. But you kind of help, you kind of cannot help but admire Pierre for that. I mean, he's always kind of lovable. I think, in a way that the other characters aren't always lovable. Yes, that's
1: right. No, he's his heart. He's got a good heart, even when his head completely deceives him you mm-hmm. he's always being carried away by some ideology
0: or another. Yeah, I, I noticed, like, the conversion to the Freemasons, it almost feels like he captures it so well, Tolstoy captures that so well, and then he's, like, getting into, like, the numerology so he can be the one great man to kill mm-hmm. Napoleon and save Russia, and then, like, he mm-hmm. kind of ditches that, and then he, like, gets into something else, and it's also, mm-hmm. like, it feels so real at times. It almost feels like a lot of young people that Tolstoy is describing. Almost could describe me in a sense, I would say.
1: Oh, how is that?
0: Uh, I mean, almost. I mean, because I do have a fairly consistent ideology since I was like in high school, but then again, being attracted to ideologies and stuff like that and being interested in that, that almost feels like me and Pierre have one thing in common. So, what ideology
1: are you attracted to? Well, where you're coming from.
0: well I was originally a conservative, a right-wing American conservative in my earlier years. Mm -hmm. Then I became more of a libertarian and Uh more of a radically consistent libertarian, and I've been that for a while. And I think I will remain that for a long time, but I will look into other ideologies to understand them and to see what Mm -hmm. they have to say, even if I end up completely disagreeing with them. Like, I might explore Uh what communism has to say, I might explore what Tolstoyanism has to say, and whatnot. And I've explored a little into what reactionary politics have to say.
1: You have a a Russian spirit
0: there. Well, I'm not exactly a Russian, but thank Uh, you so much.
1: you don't have to be a Russian to have the Russian spirit. <clears throat> You're looking for the truth. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, for example, even if I despise a lot of what Leon Trotsky would have to say, I definitely look to see what he has to say and see if I can apply it in a more positive way, for example.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you can learn from rather different people. Mm. Um, you don't have to be seduced by their whole fault to learn an insider or
0: so is that Russian spirit technically more truth-inclined, or at least is it more focused on that? Because when you said I had a Russian spirit, or at least a Tolstoyan spirit, is that what you meant?
1: Yes, if Russians tend to be attracted to ultimate questions, big ideas, the meaning of life. The negative is that they become uh, fascinated with destructive ideologies and become fanatic about them.
0: And they can uh, last for years happens. and years.
1: And they can take over a country and kill millions of people, which is what happens. Uh, But the positive side of that is that many of them are sincere, are like Pierre, just looking for for the truth of life and are fearless in how they're going to find it. They're not certain. They don't have the truth, but they're always looking. That's the positive part of it, it.
0: Yeah. But I have once tried to contact someone for an interview and then she said that I will not do an interview with you because I don't want to be associated with your views and then later she said I don't want to associate with you because you are preaching evil because of my radical libertarian views and that hurt me because I admire her work, for real. That really hurt me.
1: Yes, I can imagine, but that's sort of the spirit of, um, I have the truth and I won't talk to anybody who doesn't. Um, I didn't ask of you your views, you know, beforehand, uh, when you wanted to interview me. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I would talk, you know, and I, you know, I write for publications a very different perspective. Um, and I think I can. I try to teach my students to not think they have the ultimate answers, but to see why a person, a decent, honorable, intelligent person would have an opinion different from their own. Get inside their heads. What does it look like from their perspective? And
0: you may learn something if you do that. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I exactly got into the heads of different people, but I've been recently looking into a lot of what the left-wing or the left-liberal side of American politics has been saying, especially through Twitter. And I don't think I would have done this as much in the past months or so, but I've been doing it more now, almost entering into their viewpoints and seeing what they have to say, almost sympathizing, being one with them at times. At, mm-hmm. due to some of my own libertarian instincts and due to my desire to know what they're up to, to know what they have mm-hmm. to say. And with with example, regarding the Trump and the whole immigration slash children thing, a few months ago, I wouldn't have thought as much about it, but now I've decided to look into what other people have had to say to critique mm-hmm. it, to support it. And I don't think I would have done this as much in the past few months, but I've been doing that more now. Yes, yeah, you find out
1: with each of these issues, if you really look at them seriously... There are really things to be said from more than one perspective. you think that one side is good and the other is evil, regardless of which side you think that from, you're wrong.
0: I've even looking. Yeah, I've I've even been. It obviously
1: depends on the notion that there's a legitimate difference of opinions. If you don't believe that, then you set up a dictatorship.
0: Yeah, I've even even been looking into some of my left wing SJW ideological opponents, and I've been interested in what they had to say and. This is even more so than in the last few months. And the reason I think we do, we kind of like moved from Tolstoy to all this is because Tolstoy's search for the truth. I think it's relevant yeah. to my own interests as well.
1: Mm-hmm. I yeah, think so, too. So, right, I'm going to have to go in a minute. Why don't we get back to ask you one more question about Tolstoy
0: so we can then end on that note. Do you prefer Tolstoy or Dostoyevsky?
1: Whichever I'm reading at the moment, I suppose.
0: I'm not sure. Okay. And War and Peace or Anna Karenina? That's a tough
1: one, too. I don't know. Okay. Um, The three great novels, I think, of the world are those two and Brothers Karamazov. uh, Yeah. In my book, anyway.
0: Yeah. I love the Haji Murad story as well. That's also a brilliant thing. I think Tolstoy ended on a really good note with that story.
1: Yes. You know, he that was published posthumously he didn't never publish it himself, so it's found in his paper so. Um, so came out after he died. Okay. And, you know, ended on a good note. So yeah, it's a great story. So. Um, well I look forward to seeing, you know, um, the text of this and, and how you're gonna do it. And okay. uh, I appreciate your calling.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for joining, and thank you for this wonderful conversation. I will read Anna Karenina. I will finish up War and Peace. I will explore more of Tolstoy, reread if I can. It's been a great experience to discover Tolstoy. He's become one of my favorite authors. Uh, I'm so glad to hear that,
1: and it's good to get to know you.
0: Okay. So until next time, we this has been the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we have welcomed guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, history, and potentially all that is under the sun.